Hello and welcome to IPO Stories, a podcast that explores the tracks to IPOs for companies and their stakeholders. Through interviews with professionals who have led companies to public markets, we will learn about what it takes to IPO a business, the do's and the don'ts before, during, and after the listing process. I'm Gauthier. I'm Pear, co-founders of Amundsen Investment Management, a Europe-based equity manager. Today, we will talk with Magnus Thunnik, the global head of equity capital markets at EQT. EQT was founded in Sweden in 1994, and is today one of the world's largest private equity firms. EQT is a regular IPO sponsor, particularly in Europe and among their largest private equity holdings. For example, they listed Autostore in Norway, Azelis in Belgium, and Suze in Germany in 2021. And in 2019, they listed their own management company, EQT AB. With Magnus, we discussed the timeline and considerations EQT applies when considering an IPO management incentives and retention after the IPO, and the importance of preparing a company's sustainability strategy early. Magnus also shares his view on European listings versus US, and how to make an IPO a success for all parties involved. Before we start, we'd like to remind you that this discussion is not financial advice, nor an investment recommendation, nor a solicitation to buy or sell any financial instruments, or an offer for financial services, or any other transaction. The information contained in the recording have no contractual value, and are destined for an informational purpose only. Amundsen Investment Management and the participants on this podcast may have holdings in the companies being discussed. Magnus, good morning. Very nice to have you here in our Oslo office. I think it's the first time we have actually a physical podcast recording, so that's the uh, first thing. Great to have you here. Maybe you should introduce yourself to start with. Thanks, Gautier. My name is uh, Magnus Thorning. I'm running the equity capital markets division at uh, at EQT. And for you who doesn't know, so the idea of starting a private equity firm rooted in the Wallenbergs family tradition of responsible ownership was started in Stockholm in the early 90s. Today, we are a global purpose-driven investment organization, slightly more than 100 billion euros in fee-paying AUM. So uh, been a pretty impressive journey from a little office in Stockholm in '94 to now a global alternative investment organization. Okay, very long history, and because we're here to talk about IPOs, can you um, you know remind us which IPOs EQT have been involved in the last few years? Yeah, I would say, of course, all, always since the beginning. I think since the early 2000s, probably from the old EQT platform, we've done over 20 IPOs. Since we IPO'd ourselves, we've done a few transformative mergers, one with a life science firm called LSP. They did a few IPOs before joining EQT, and the same with Bearings Private Equity in Asia, who's also been very active on the IPO front. Of course, uh, as with you guys, it's fluctuates year by year. In 2017, we did one IPO in Tervestal in Finland, 2018 uh, none, and 2019, so come back to, we IPO'd ourselves. Then in 2020, it started, of course, getting more active. Then we did Musti, whose company at Ansatara in 21, uh, Suse, Aselis, and Autostore. 2022, a quiet year. And then so far this year, we've done one IPO in the US called Kodiak. Okay. So you're getting global, right? Yeah. So, and clearly, of course, with the now increasing presence in Asia, that will also be a bigger market for us. So that's something in the media. There is uh, one IPO out in Japan of a portfolio company of ours right now. Yeah, so no IPOs in 22. I mean, obviously the market was down, right? Very little activity after strong years, as you say, 2021. 23, you're starting to see a bit of IPO recovery. You mentioned this IPO in the US, one in, in Japan. 
what's your view on the IPO market? Do you think we are at a time where it will start recovering after two years of very quiet deal flow expectation on that front? I would say that, of course, if you look on the indices, you look on the volatility coming down, I think everything would be perfect for an IPO market, but still it's very slow. We see it ourselves with the IPOs that we've been out to, but also on the sell downs of our listed stakes. It is tough out there. I think it will take time, especially in Europe, for the market to recover. So I don't think we will see a boom. Second half, 23, probably opening up a little bit more in 2024. I think you're right. We see the same, the volatility index, the VIX being a good uh, lead indicator for IPO deal flow, and it's been pretty low now for a couple of months. So it um, sounds like IPO activity could pick up. Back to equity. How many um, exits do you do across your funds per year, and uh, how many will be done through IPOs? I think, of course, it differs year by year. And of course, we have a venture portfolio, which is a very broad. So there we do is a exit probably every month, but from the larger strategies of the infrastructure and the private capital, especially in the private equity, I would say you probably see five, 10 exits per year of those zero to three being IPOs. And of course, given the size of our investments nowadays, and also the investment thesis of EQT of investing into high growth, high profitability, many of them fits very well for the public market. So I think over time that will just grow to probably be maybe 25, a third of all our exits through the IPO. Yeah, it makes sense. Bigger funds, bigger investments, obviously the public market being a, a more credible option to exit those bigger companies. Is that the reason why your role has been created at, at EQD? We don't see that in a lot of private equity funds, clearly. Yeah, I think that it will just become a more and more used exit alternative for us. And hence, it makes sense to have someone who looks at it also from a global perspective and making sure that we maximize our efforts, but also learn from historical mistakes, especially helping management team to not make the mistakes that uh, previous management teams have done. Is there a good formula when you look at your um, investment portfolio companies that, okay, this company is perfect for public markets? When would you know that the public route is actually the best suited one? Yeah, I think it is, of course, a little bit. First, it comes back to size. I think above 5 billion euros in equity value starts to be tough on private equity exits, also on strategic exits, that is size. And then, of course, we see in the public market, if we're going to take a company public, it preferably has a predictability of earnings, especially on the quarterly earnings. I think the companies that fluctuates more, will have a more difficult life on the stock exchange. So hence, we prefer to take the companies public who has say, fairly stable and predictable earnings. Yeah, it makes sense. A bit uh, less prone for surprise, which usually the market doesn't like. <laughs> if you look at your portfolio again, different companies provide some very grossy companies, some bit more mature business models. Does it make a difference again, this gross profile, if you would choose the, the IP option or, or not? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, I would say that, of course, we have fund called EQT Growth, but also the venture portfolio, which clearly invests in slightly a higher growth. And then, of course, an IPO is also a very attractive exit alternative. And remember, on most of the really high growth companies, there are a lot of several owners who probably have a different time horizon. And then the IPO is an ideal exit avenue where people can have difference in terms of exit uh, horizon. And when you interact internally with your deal partners and the sector teams, right? Obviously, you are at EQT, you are the public ears in a way, right? You talk to investors, you follow the market quite closely. 
but you have those partners in charge of portfolio companies and investment, right? How do they look at the IPO and the public markets? Are they actually afraid of that? Do, do they think it's just a bad option? We know the cumbersome of the process, the challenge of monetizing new investment over time. What's the debate typically internally when you discuss about IPOs with those partners? This, of course, depends on the company profile. It also depends where are we in the life cycle of a fund. Towards the end of the fund life cycle, of course, the IPO is less attractive. It is more likely that we're gamed by the market. They know that we should exit within the next two to three years. I think in the earlier in the fund horizon, it's easier to do an IPO. We can hold the companies for longer, as you seen in, like in Aceles, which we IPO'd in 21, we've done just one little minor adjustment to the ownership and kept that one and are no in, in no rush of selling. So I think that go in terms, and of course, it differs market to market. We all know the US market, it takes a long time to exit a public stake. So there I would say the deal partners is probably a bit more reluctant, while here in Europe, at least historically, IPO market, and we'll come back to that, has, has historically worked very well. You can do larger sell downs. We say that historically we needed two to three sell downs to fully exit our portfolio companies here in Europe through, through an IPO. Of course, that has changed over the last couple of years. So it's interesting, actually, if you um, make an investment which is early in the fund's life cycle, you're probably better off to start thinking about an IPO early because you keep that optionality as well, right? You, you list the assets, you still keep a controlling stake. So you have other options if you want to exit, right? Yes, correct. If you time the market right, because usually you're also a bit dependent on market conditions to IPO. Correct. And of course, it's uh, on the IPO side, I think it's a little bit, I think in, in hindsight, if you look back, of course, timing the market at the time of the IPO is of course nice, but it's not there where you make your money. It's on the sell down. So I think we would rather than go a bit early. The IPO window doesn't need to be fully open. You take a little bit higher discount than you probably should do in a buoyant IPO market, but you can do your sell downs in a more orderly fashion in terms of increasing share prices and better risk appetite. So I think it's important that you actually start before you get the optimal market conditions. And that means you need to get your portfolio companies ready to IPO. And we come back to that, but I guess it's always important to keep in mind, right? Actually, this dual track process where you keep that option where potentially you work for an IPO, but you also keep the option to sell to strategic or another private equity. I guess it's case by case again. The biggest risk I will assume is that a lot of stress and pressure on management to run two processes, right? And that's why we said that, okay, we cannot run a dual track process for all companies. Of course, we, we have a fiduciary responsibility towards our LPs to always try to maximize value. But also in terms of maximizing value, it's transaction certainty. And of course, what happens happen if you do a dual track, management gets distracted, both running the IPO track, running the M&A track, and suddenly uh, they lose focus on the business. Current trading starts to, to soften, and then you don't get an exit either through the IPO or M&A market. So now question on helping those companies to be IPO ready. Is there an equity playbook? Do you have a secret sauce that helps those companies being better prepared for IPO? I wouldn't call it a secret source, but we try to get involved very early on in the ownership period. I was meeting a company this week. They're thinking of listing in 25 or 26, but actually start the IPO preparations now. Then you can run it pretty softly for a year or two, not interfering with the current business, but also making sure that you have all the KPIs in place, you have the equity story. 
thought out what are the supporting numbers that you need to verify the equity story, include those in the in the annual accounts, etc. So we would like to start actually the IPO preparations at least 24 months ahead of the IPO. And actually, we have companies now, as you know, that are set for an IPO in 25, where we are meeting investors like yourself already now for you to get a little bit of a look and feel of them, but also for them to meet investors here, what is important for them. So we think the early preparations, that is at least critical for, for the success of our IPOs at least. I was thinking, uh, there's another IPO you have, I would not mention the name, but we looked at the financials and all those EBITDA adjustments, which makes sense because some of them are related to IPO costs. And actually they start like three years before the IPO, right? So it's really confirmed that there's preparation work well ahead of the IPO uh, to get finance teams in place, reporting in place, sometimes even IR uh, well ahead of the IPO. Where do you guys add, do you think, the most value? It's especially around the finance function, I would say. I think our companies are, of course, most focused on hitting the yearly numbers. They have a three to five year plan is focused on that. Of course, shifting that mindset, making sure that you also hit the quarterly numbers. They are great in terms of forecasting full year numbers along it, but not that great in terms of quarterly numbers. So actually starting early on with the finance team to do, say, mock trials of quarterly reporting, quarterly forecasting, it's always the finance function that is too lightly staffed ahead of the IPO. They are the one that are mostly impacted by the IPO process. And at the same time, of course, the company needs to hit their numbers at least for the next uh, 24 to 36 months after the IPO and, of course, during the IPO process as well. This is also why we think for companies to be good IPO candidates, they need to have some critical size because otherwise suddenly the top management you know, is drawn in these public markets and probably losing a bit focus on the business as well, right? Spending more time marketing and talking to investors and explaining quarterly numbers instead of running the business. And you can only do that if you have enough staff and, and some critical size, obviously, right? Yeah, I fully agree. And back to the IR function as well. We would like all our companies to actually have that and actually the IR person being early involved in the process. I think we historically we have had some companies where we have hired the IR post the IPO. Then it's almost too late. I think the IPO process is a great learning exercise for a new IR to get involved in the business, maybe be the project manager for the IPO. And then we said that works excellent. Not definitely. And that's a feedback we keep giving because not only you have a person who actually understands and own the equity story and can, you know, is a bit more accountable to the public markets as well because he was involved early and he understands expectation as well. So that's important. Give some continuity to the management team as well to have an IR before the IPO. But also helps, I guess, the market to engage with the company after the IPO, right? As you know, too often we have a lack of liquidity engagement with, with the public investors who have not participated at the IPO. And to engage them, you need, obviously, a very active IR function. Some private equity house decide to postpone, I guess, the, the investment. It's a bit of an additional cost. But I think it's actually a good investment. We think that's new, new investment over time. Yeah, yeah truly. And, and of course, also sparing a bit of the time to the CEO and CFO post a listing. And of course you have, when you're done the IPO, you also have a responsibility to follow up with your new partners on the shareholder register. Yeah. So you actually you need to spend time with them as well. And it's probably better that it's done by an IR than the CEO. And what do you think management struggle the most during the IPO process? 
I would say that, and it actually comes back to our own IPO. Remember previously, we couldn't understand why you couldn't list a company within six months. We couldn't really understand why the CEO and CFO struggled to do that and run the business at the same time. Come on, they have advisors with them. They have us in EQT (laughs) helping them. How hard can it be? I think that was a real eye-opener for ourselves how much work it actually is for a CEO and especially for a CFO to take a company in public. Does actually your IR team interact a lot with those private companies or IRs of the public companies? Do you exchange a lot on that? Yeah, we try to do. And then of course, our CFO, so Kim, he has had a lot of discussions with other CFOs in IPO candidates in our portfolio companies in terms of lessons learned. We interact a lot with the project managers for IPOs between different portfolio companies to share lessons learned, what works, what doesn't work that well, and also on the CEO side. But I would say especially on the CFO side and the project managers for the IPOs, they interact a lot say, across portfolio companies as well. There's a topic where we could probably spend an hour just on that, but I think it's a very interesting one. It's how you incentivize management in an IPO context and after the IPO. I know it's a tricky question. We know that management like to work with private equity because there's a very strong incentive to make a great exit. A question that we see really is to what extent the management is also incentivized to stay with their new shelters in the public world. How do you think about that? That's something we spend enormous amount of time on. How do we make sure that they are as motivated for the next journey as they've been under our private ownership? And of course, in in the private ownership, you can create fairly attractive incentive structures linking it to the value creation done for us in EQT. Of course, it's much more scrutinized in the public market, especially in Europe. It's tougher in Europe than compared to the the US in terms of incentive plans. And when you say tougher, you mean in terms of incentive plans? Yes, in terms of the market is in the US, they are more open to, to, to share even more upside with the management team than people are used to in Europe. But that's something we spend a lot of time on. And then, of course, making sure that you have a management team that is as motivated as they were during our ownership phase. And of course, it's a great motivation that all of them are shareholders in the new company and is say, working on that. But often it needs to come something on, on the top of it. So we're working a lot to find the best structures there, I wouldn't say that we have found the silver bullet yet, but uh, but we have some which we think is pretty attractive plans for the management. It's interesting because we very often ask that question to management and I always feel that they don't want to disclose much as if they have a great management package and they, they're making a good exit. But actually, we think it would be positive to see that being you know transformed into equity into the company at the IPO and, and they have a bit more skin in the game, right? And they should disclose a bit more, I think, how much of the company they eventually own when the management package unfolds, because that would probably give more comfort on our side that they have skin in the game. And the question is how long they're going to be locked up. But I think showing that participation to the upside post-IPO, I think it's, it's very important and they should put that forward a bit more instead of hiding numbers, really. That's a great comment. And I think it's also a little bit, in the US, they are very open with that, while in Europe, people are a little bit more restrictive in terms of disclosing, disclosing that upfront. Now, one of the risks or concerns we have, to be fair, is sometimes we think that the management also see the IPO as an exit. I mean, it's an exit for the pre-IPO owners, and that makes sense. We understand the model. But I'll put the management in two categories. 
some management you really feel they do to maximize the exits and take a big check and make sense. But again, question is, you know, how long they're going to stay in the business. And some other type of management, you feel that actually they're happy to get rid of their pre-IPO share order and the, the P funds, and they want to stay on board and, you know, behave as the owner of the business. For many, many management teams out there, I think the IPO is a golden stamp on their business. They've been able to take a company from a say private setting to publicly listed company. And for many, that is a key achievement in their also in their career path as well. But do you sit down with your management ahead of the decision to IPO and ask them about their longer term intentions to make sure it's a PLC type management who can stay on board for the next five to ten years after IPO? Yeah. No, so what we at least try to say it's and that's why we like to start two years ahead of the IPO. Mm-hmm with the real grown-up discussions with the management team, are you ready for the next five-year journey, being, say, two years ahead of the IPO and at least three years post the IPO? And if they're not ready with that, then we need to have a discussion in terms of a orderly transition. I think it's hard to IPO a company where you have had a new CEO for six months. It's not his story that is selling to you as new investors. It's the old CEOs. But also we cannot have a CEO that we know will say, okay, after the lockup period, after a year, year and a half, I'll leave and, and sell my shares. That's uh, then we, I think we have broken the responsibility and the contract with you guys as new investors. So we try to say that if you're going to be part of the IPO and be the public CEO, you at least need to have a say three-year horizon. Maybe in some cases it's it's shorter, but then the natural new CEO candidate is so obvious to the IPO market that they say, okay, but it's clear that it's uh, he or she that will become the new CEO. And especially if you have a CEO that is age-wise, say in the mid-60s, it's natural to see that transition come maybe closer to two years than three years. We're running statistics and we need to check, but it seems to me there's been a bit of a tendency again of having too much management change post-IPO. You know, probably related to the difficult market conditions the last, you know, two or three years and some management probably struggling to face the reality of the big market. But I think it's very important to show a bit more continuity here post IPO. ESG, we just talked about governance, but the G, but if we talk about E and S here, I know it's always been very high on, on your agenda at EQT. I remember back at the time of your IPO, your own IPO in 2019, I was quite impressed by how you put ESG across all your investments. You didn't have a ESG dedicated fund. really sounded like this is something you implement, you know, day one across your portfolio companies, right? When you look at public exit, how are you thinking about sustainability, ESG, what the focus internally on that? If you go back five years, the ESG report was something that uh, was hastily created uh, three to six months ahead of the IPO, so that you at least could tick the box that you had an ESG report. I think nowadays that doesn't work in the public market anymore. So if you haven't published an ESG report before your IPO, people will say, well, this is not an integrated part of your strategy. It's something that you have found out because you have seen that this is important for public markets and you also see the growth of dedicated ESG investors as well. Of course, this is part of every value creation plan in every portfolio company in in equity from, from day one. So hopefully they should be very well prepared for the public market on the ESG side. 
Yeah, I think you're right. It shouldn't be a tick the box exercise. And companies who actually, before IPO report, sustainability report, clearly we understand it's in being part of their process. And we make that difference. And, you know, five years ago, I wasn't necessarily spending a lot of time on, on that during due diligence, but clearly today we spend a lot of time with management about disclosure, EU taxonomy, compliance, and alignment, environmental targets. We do actually some ESG benchmarking as well, which again, we were not doing a couple of years ago. So I think there's a trend toward that, obviously. But also when you know that it's quite challenging already to engage with public investors in an IPOs, today I don't think you can actually afford missing any investor just because you haven't done that, you know, reporting and ESG requirements, right? I think it's it's a must do today. Yeah, and I fully agree. And also you see the ESG dedicated funds are are one of the few segments that is actually also growing in the mutual fund market as well. Indeed. But it's no surprise. I think you have three IPOs live in Europe as we speak. Two of them are very much directly related to the energy transition. And I think there's capital being deployed in the space. Moving on, success factors for an IPO, right? I'm keen to uh, get your experience here. What you think is very critical? What has played uh, out as an important factor of success or failure for IPOs? I think it's come back to what we discussed earlier in terms of hitting the numbers the first six quarters post IPO is just critical. You see the success of the companies that do it. As a, people get a confidence in terms of the management team. Yes, something maybe we don't like the pricing, but at least people are there if we want to do a monetization event. If the company wants to raise money, there is capital there. I think the capital market is so brutal that if you miss one of your, say, first four quarters, it will take you another year or two years to build confidence back to the market. And that's why the companies that go public, they really need to be so predictable in terms of their earnings that they always hit their numbers or preferably continue to outperform the guidance they've they've given. A miss is the challenge. And unfortunately, the market can be a bit binary, but it's true that if you miss very early your numbers, you're putting yourself at risk of being quite a dead money and illiquidity will, will start hitting you and then you won't make the local market indexes and yeah, you're then suddenly not a must own, right? And then it's a very difficult path to cover. Yeah, it's, it's tough to get out and then suddenly liquidity dries up. Funds like yourself in terms of have difficulties increasing the position despite the earnings looks and valuation looks attractive because you just say, well, the risk from the compliance departments is not possible to add more stocks given how illiquid it is. It's a tough one. So that's why in our view, it's better to be long-term greedy. Make sure the company hits the numbers for the first couple of quarters, even though you don't maybe then like the IPO valuation. You feel that you could push it a little bit higher if management were a bit more forward-leaning on their guidance. But I think in the end, you will come out in a much better situation if you given some some headrooms to the numbers. You have to maximize 100% of your equity, not the 20% you sell at IPO, but it's difficult to get around this momentum around the IPO process itself. But, you know, back to the IPO process, you have a lot of advisors around you. The management has a lot of advisors. You take on advisors as well. I mean, how are you thinking about those IPO equity advisors? Do you onboard them every time? I would say probably 50% of the time. I would say that if there is a large IPO, we often have a lot of co-investors with us. We actually like to have an independent financial advisor. I think it's good in terms of managing all the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And also if there is a market where we as EQT haven't done an IPO before, to have a local independent financial advisor to have the knowledge of the local market. There's a lot of regulations that we aren't aware of. 
I would say if it's a small mid cap IPO in Sweden where we've done 10 IPOs before, I think we have less tendency to bring on an independent financial advisor, at least early on, maybe towards the end of the process in terms of allocations or anything. But on the bigger ones, we usually have it. And where can they add most value, you think? I would say especially around the stakeholder management. Remember, especially on the big IPOs, we have, of course, management, big shareholders, Mm. we as EQT, maybe some of our most important LPs are invested there as well. People have a little bit of a different of time horizons in terms of where to optimize, when to go, how much can we sell at the IPO. Is there is a coordinated sell-down agreement afterwards? And there I think it's great to have an independent advisor to help us sort out that. It seems that it's a very European thing, or is that the same in the US? Now, I think in the US, it's few firms that uh, dominate the market. I would say they are much more involved, especially around the marketing phase, around the coordination of, of the analyst and really on the book building phase. While in Europe, they are even more earlier involved in the IPO process, really being more of a project manager for the IPO. I would say the US advisors are a little bit lighter in the beginning of the process and then towards the end they get heavily involved. You had experience in Europe, in US, now in Asia as well, obviously. I'm keen to get your views on, because there's been very little innovation in the IPO process, right, over the years, I think. But you have some regional differences. We touch upon one. And as you know, there's a lot of debate as well, how we can make European listing location in the UK a bit more attractive versus the US, for example. And I think there's a lot of debate, right? But what's your take on that? Do you have strong views about what could be changed in Europe, at least compared to the US or vice versa? I would say, of course, the US market has some clear benefits over the European. Of course, it's deeper, clearly deeper. The process is more flexible in in the US. It's shorter time to market. I think it's normal in the US to flex both on size and price. It's not as a disaster to price below the range in Mm -hmm. the US or or above the range, which would be highly unusual in in Europe. I think where Europe struggles is, of course, in the aftermarket liquidity, which Mm -hmm. is, in our view, the real tough questions for the European market to cope with. I would say, of course, in the US, the liquidity is centered around New York or the Nasdaq, while, of course, in Europe, every country has their local exchange. And of course, the more you spread out liquidity, the less trading you you get. So I think that over time, if Europe is going to be successful competing with with the US, and you see, unfortunately, now a lot of European companies are moving to the US and decides to do a listing in the US instead of in Europe. And of course, for Europe, that's very, very unfortunate. And I think if you're going to turn that, uh, you will need to see more consolidation on the listing locations. I think that over time, you cannot have an exchange in every market in Europe. You need to have uh, fewer, uh, which we think will drive more liquidity. And then Europe will once again become a very attractive listing location, hopefully. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Totally agree on that. Liquidity is a big issue. And I think uh, obviously Europe is always more fragmented. That's a technical constraint for companies listing in their you know, domestic markets. Although, you know, markets like in Sweden, they're, they're a bit more liquid because I think they have a bit more of a captive local investor base. Sweden, you see Switzerland as well. You see the clear benefit of those markets who has a real retail high net following who invest in stocks. While you see other European markets where it's 
less common for the man in the street to own stocks. And of course, then the liquidity goes down drastically. So of course, there are some, some markets in Europe that work excellently. And of course, Sweden is one of them. The shorter time to market in the US, I think it's possible because they also give more information to the market early and they have those, you know, S1 filing, right? So actually, yes, it's shorter time to market, but there's probably a bit more time to prepare and get to know the company really from the investors. Yeah, of course you have, you have, as you said, you have the public filing that can be public for six months, 12 months ahead of the IPO for people actually to spend time on the company and, and the industry. And then when the window is open, you can go out uh, quickly. And of course, in the US, you also share much more granular data on the short-term guidance. You actually share the model with the analysts. So there is, I would say, also less uncertainty around which are the right numbers for uh, for the consensus. And this decision to go in the US versus listing in your home market, does it happen? You have such a discussion with your portfolio companies and I know you have a venture fund, you have some very exciting tech investment as well. I'm sure the US is a very exciting, attractive market for those companies and founders. What's the debate around that? And Spotify is a good example. A couple of years ago, they chose you know, the US. It was big news in, in Sweden, right? Yeah, yeah, and for many tech founders, being listed on, on Nasdaq is also a stamp of quality approval for yeah. them that they have done something right. I know, and of course, for also for our larger investments where we see some good peers, if they are in US or London, but I think in the end, listing in the home market is most likely the preferred option. I think it's hard, say, for a Swiss company, even though you have a great peer in the UK, if you don't have your head office in the UK or a significant business in the UK to go there just because you have a good pair and the same as also for tech companies. And also remember, if you are not US domicile company with significant activity there, you will not come into the, the relevant indices in the US. And then going into the US, if you're not a household name, I don't think liquidity will be any better than in Europe, rather the opposite. Often we will land at the first instant that uh, the U.S. market looks super attractive for some of our European assets. But then we do, when we dig a little bit deeper, I think it's few of them that, at least now, will actually go to the U.S. Uh, US market. But let's see how, how Europe develops over the next five years, if there are some changes so that we increase liquidity or if liquidity just continues to go down in, in Europe. And then I think companies will be forced to list in the U.S. Hopefully that doesn't happen and we see a few changes on that front from the regulator and politicians. You mentioned in, in the US, IPO size tend to be a bit smaller than in Europe. As well, I think in the US, usually we see more of a primary component, grossy type of equity stories, as opposed to Europe, it tends to have a bit more of a secondary component, right? So I, that leads to the question to me, how are you thinking about monetizing investment over time post-IPO? What are the key considerations from that perspective? I think, of course, it's important to understand that the IPO itself for a private equity firm, it's not the monetization event, and especially not in the US where it's a primary component of it. If it's not 100%, it's at least very large. But where we drive our monetization is, of course, on the secondary sales. And hence, we just need to make sure that we set up the IPO for success. It needs to trade well. And I think for us, that wants to be a frequent IPO participant, of course, we, we need to make sure that everyone earns money on our IPOs, everyone earns money on our sell downs. And of course, then pricing at 100, do the first sell down at 90 and the third at uh, 60, 
it's tough to get back to the market. That's why the IPO needs to work out of the gate, of course. Sometimes it doesn't, and I think that at least it shouldn't be because of company factors. Yes, if the market is down 20, 30, 40%, of course, I think it's understandable that an IPO trades down, but it shouldn't trade down due to say, weak performance. And how do you go if you know, it trades well below the IPO price? You, you say it's a challenging one. Do you think ULP is putting pressure on you to actually you know, keep monetizing or exiting, or there's a case where you should take it private, right? You still have a big stake, potentially a controlling stake. As you say, it's very difficult to get back to where it should be if you're a bit of a debt money and now nothing to the management and the execution. It's just that market conditions made it tough. Do you think there's a good case for taking those companies private again, or you should just not do that because it's bad for your firm, for your reputation to IPO companies and take them private again? I think it, of course, differs case by case. I think in some cases where you see the company has delivered according to plan, uh, but the market has has re-rated, I think it's a good case for thinking, okay, is this an attractive take private opportunity? I think we, we are in a fortunate situation where we have a high DPI in our funds as we don't have a lot of pressures from our LPs to quickly monetize assets. We have the time to get them closer back to the IPO price and do the monetizations then. So I think we're in a pretty fortunate situation, at least right now. Coming to the end, there's one last topic I want to touch upon, is the equity investor base. Uh, you have many years of experience interacting with the public markets. Can you tell us a bit, what is the typical profile of investor participating in an IPO and, and the one not participating in an IPO but potentially later? Do you think that there's a big difference in the crowds of investors around IPOs? And I, I remember uh, one of your deck for IPO preparation where you say to management that this is the only chance they have to really choose their investors at IPO, right? So it's a very important time. But it feels to me, again, that the engagement of public investors at IPO is quite limited to a very narrow crowd, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think it's unfortunately getting more and more limited. I think you, you see the successful funds are attracting more and more money on behalf of less successful funds. And then suddenly you, you only have a few big ones that play in the IPO. So what we tell the management team is, for the first time, Actually, they have the chance to choose who their shareholders are at least for six hours before the stocks start trading and they should really use that. I think historically where you can say, okay, why are the European IPOs trading less than the US? It's probably also you see a more concentration in European books. You see the top 10 is taking more of the IPO than in, in the US books. And, and of course, we really like the long-term holders ask yourself at the time of the IPO, but of course we also need to make sure that there is some trading. Actually need to make sure that there are some shares for investors like yourself to buy post the IPO, otherwise it, we could have done it completely in a private setting, bringing in some new piece and, and running on the private side. So I think that we need to also facilitate for aftermarket trading, making sure that the books aren't as concentrated as maybe they were just after COVID where you have top 10 taking 75-80% of the book. And if you all believe that they are holders for three to five years, it's very little, say, real flow in the stocks. Uh, that's a real issue. And I think where maybe uh, you know, book runners and, and everyone can try to do better here is just to tap into those tier two, tier three accounts from the middle of the book, right? Where you can just expand the number of investors engaging around the process. 
because concentration is one thing. It's it's great to de-risk your transaction when markets conditions are challenging, but doesn't really solve this liquidity issue and coverage post IPO. No, and that's why something we at least try to engage a lot with during the pre-deal investor education. Of course, everyone wants to meet the 15, 20 largest global mutual fund complex in the syndicate, but it's not really a point that seven or eight banks are spending meetings with those. It's enough with two, three, and they should be out on the road meeting the tier two and uh, tier three accounts to drive more lines into the book. And we actually looked at lines of European IPOs in the early 2000s. We had around 280 lines in the books. Of the last five years, that has been now down to 160 lines. So it's going the wrong way. So we need to make sure that we get more liquidity. We need to get more investors into the book. And uh, if that is private wealth channel or other channels, but it needs to come more liquidity into the books. Yeah, I think there's a lot of money on the side. And as you say, private wells, family offices, funds, I think it's just about making the IPO probably a bit more exciting as well. And I'm sure you will be engaged with a broader investor base. And uh, hopefully this podcast helps engaging interest on IPOs. Very final questions. Any fun facts that you can share with us during past IPOs experience? I would say four hours off doing an IPO of the GP was a big uh, moment of revelation. How tough it actually is. So I think that uh, previously we talked uh, internally that uh, you should be able to IPO on six months. Uh, Now we say, oh, if you're doing it uh, within a year, you are very, very good. And we truly understand how difficult it is for you as a management team. I think we are better at supporting the management teams post-2019 than we were prior to 2019. You always have to lead by showing the example, right? Yes. So I think that's a really good memory. And if there was any company you will dream to IPO, which one that would be? Probably if uh, Fleming and Thomas from uh, Galdarma is listening, they would probably kill me if I wouldn't say them. So of course, it will be a marquee IPO in Europe when that comes. But of course, otherwise, it will be fantastic the day when we decide if we're going to IPO Antisemex or not. That will also be a great, uh, great story. I think I heard someone say never sell on TCMX. So. <laughs> but let's wish for us as well. It's a great, great business as well. So we'll be looking forward to that one if it happens. Magnus, thank you very much and uh, have a great summer. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to IPO Stories. In future episodes, we'll host CEOs, CFOs, investors, and advisors who have been involved in the IPO process. If you like the show, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share the show with people around you. Throughout the series, we'd like to address some of the important questions from management and investors. If there are some questions you have in your mind, which you'd like us to address with future guests, please get in touch at contact.ipostories.com. If you'd like to read more about our thoughts on the IPO process, please follow us on LinkedIn on Hominson Investment Management.